0: Bob Bell, are you going to miss your broadcasting career? Well, I never thought I would have a broadcasting career, but yes, I am going to miss it. This has been a lot of fun. What kind of view
1: did it give you that maybe you didn't have before?
0: Well, uh, I've been a teacher my whole life, and I wanted local matters, the education matters part that I did, to focus on... The Education system, but I never taught in the in the k twelve system. My mother did all her life, uh, but it gave me a chance to get a a whole new appreciation for uh, our teachers in the not just Putnam county school system, but uh, we had folks from Jackson and White and Overton and Warren on the show also um, and it um, you just have to appreciate what they do every day their
1: jobs. Are really thankless, and that's a term that's thrown around a lot, but the role of a teacher at any level today is as much about the emotional and mental part as it is imparting information
0: and that's that's really hard to teach in a university setting to get them ready for that i i can't imagine prepping to be a teacher right now because uh, the content knowledge, the actual technical things that you teach, is uh, fairly standard. Um, but boy, the socio-emotional things that teachers have to put up with and go through every day, just, it, it, it amazes me. And the mechanisms by which
1: things are taught today. I mean, you go on the Tennessee Tech campus, much like any campus in this nation, you're you're going to increasingly see fewer and fewer of those fifty minute lectures that you went through and that I went through
0: absolutely right the uh, The technology that the teacher deals with today, whether it 's at tech or in in kindergarten or first grade it, it's just amazing what's available and it's amazing what a eight year old or ten year old child can do with that technology they navigate my iPhone a lot better than I navigate my iPhone.
1: There's been a lot of talk in the last several years that the technology will get to a point where we don't need teachers. Can you imagine that?
0: No, I can't imagine it. I, I understand expert systems and artificial intelligence to a degree, and I I understand that there are some things that are going to be better because of this, but I can't imagine not having a mentor and that's really what a teacher is to a a third grader they're they're a mentor and a guide as much as they are anything else and i don't think an expert system can do that
1: how how so a mentor and a guide
0: well they just uh, they spend more time with that child in a given week than many other people do now if you count sleeping hours mom and dad are there more but often Maybe one guardian is there, but that teacher is with that child eight hours a day, maybe ten hours if you count after school. So they they really are someone who shapes their values, shapes their uh, their vision of society, shapes their, um, their their vision of how to work in a in an organized culture.
1: I'm wondering in your years in education, and especially in your years. At Tennessee Tech. Is there a consistency to successful people, Bob, in that they can all reflect back on a teacher, an experience, a word
0: that was said, uh, a sit down that was had? Probably there is. I, I don't think it's the same for every person, every successful teacher. And I don't think it happens at the same point in their life. Uh, I can remember some of my teachers from Ms. Hall in third grade, Mr. Calhoun in eighth grade, and, and they shaped me. There's no question they, they shaped me. Uh, and I can remember that from, a, from faculty in my Ph.D. program who didn't so much tell me things as asked me questions and created things I need to go, needed to go learn. And um so yeah I think I think teachers shape us in different ways and so there's not one particular style that I think every teacher has to use but I think they all find a way to shape their students.
1: When did your decision come to be an educator?
0: Very late in life. Very late in my college life anyway. So I um my mother was a teacher. And uh, my dad had an eighth grade education, but he had more farm schooling and and uh, common sense kind of schooling than anybody I'd ever met. And they both, from the moment I was born, I knew I was going to college. So there was no question I was going to college. But I grew up, after we moved to Florida while I was at 14, I, I grew up near the Kennedy Space Center. And so I wanted to be something in aerospace. I didn't particularly like math. I wasn't particularly good in what today we'd call engineering. But, boy, I thought I needed to be in aerospace. So I went through undergraduate school thinking that's where I was going to go. And I went into a master's program, in an MBA, knowing exactly what company I wanted to go back to in Melbourne, Florida, Radiation Incorporated, and about halfway through that master's program, a faculty member grabbed me, and he, he grabbed me first by giving me a really bad grade, and that got my attention. And then he, I was, thought I was a real hot shot in computers. So he said, he gave me a book, and he said, model this, and write a computer program for this. And the book was called A Behavioral Theory of the Firm, and it was about human beings. And it could be a behavioral theory of any organization, but it it, it wasn't about how you can program. It's about how random they are in many things and how many different angles there are that they bring to the worksite. And um, so I started trying to write programs about it, and I did, and that prof and I had a lot of fun, but it changed the direction of my thinking in terms of what I wanted to do, changed the direction of my research, and that in turn all of a sudden made him decide that he wanted me to teach an undergraduate class while I was in doctoral program, and that's how I got into teaching. I wanted to go into aerospace. I never thought about teaching until halfway through my master's program.
1: Was it an experience that you know that lit the light bulb, so to speak, in the
0: classroom, or just? It, it was partly an experience, uh, uh, partly a, a, a eureka or a light bulb in the classroom where you uh, you got in there and you thought. Hey, I'm I'm okay at this. I can do this kind of thing and they seem to like it and they don't mind me asking stupid questions, which is what a I think a great professor does. They they get out of the just the rut and ask the student to get over in the edges. And uh so yeah, I think it was partly that and I think partly it was Wally Hill and Bill Fox and those other professors that that asked me to go a different direction than I thought I was going to go and that different direction sucked me into teaching. Some people whose parents are teachers
1: have an aversion to it because they've <laughs> seen what their parents
0: have gone through. Yes. Did you have that at all? No, I didn't. Uh, but I saw what they went through the late nights grading papers and the 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 bus duty and the cafeteria duty and all of that, uh, teachers still do that. And they, they they do a lot more than just 8 to 5. And they do a lot in the summer to prepare for the, the rest of the year. So they've got a lot that we ought to respect them for and thank them for. Uh, but it did not create an aversion to it. I just was so in love with aerospace that that's all I thought about.
1: And I guess... You were talking to people who were also in love with aerospace. Very which much is so. Part of the unique part of being a college teacher or professor. Yeah,
0: it, it was. Um, my brother was a, a very senior leader in NASA and worked on the Apollo program a, a lot. And everyone, I lived in Cocoa, Florida. Everyone in that community either worked at the Cape or was related to someone that worked at the Cape. My faculty at, at Cocoa High School, while I was in high school, had all worked at the Space Center before they came back to to teach. And uh, so it, it was just aerospace. They were launching a missile every two days in those days. And, um, my gosh, you just couldn't. If you lived there, you thought about it. How does that impact
1: a teacher at the college level? Uh, and, again, you have Obviously English and history and some of those things but you get into those levels where we're talking about your majors and you're in a business class you're in a journalism class right and you've got students
0: who in a lot of cases they're eat up with that like you are what what's that like it's exciting when you find somebody that's that's eaten up with it uh, and again they're they're all different it might be they're eating up with baseball or they're eating up with um, uh, with whatever, with the Titans. And you can turn that into, okay, model that. That's what Wally Hill did for me. <laughs> and I think that's what a good teacher does. So you can take those, and, boy, baseball is big business. Football is big business. Uh, the Kennedy Space Center is a massive business. And so you can take any environment and turn it into the classroom in business or in history. You can teach history using examples from these these things, too. So I think a good prof does that. Um, you know, they they make it real for the students that they've got that semester. And that, that that means they've got to understand where those students are coming from and what they're looking for. Dr. Bob Bell is our guest.
1: we're visiting with Dr. Bob Bell. So you have that epiphany that okay, teaching is my it just might be what I want to do. What was your next step?
0: Well, to do it at the college level, which is what I wanted to do, uh you need a PhD. Uh you don't. You could teach at community college without it, but um my profs that were pulling me along were talking PhD all that time. And so that's the next thing is, okay, when I finish this master's later this year, I've got to get into a doctoral program somewhere. I had really good profs at the University of Florida, and so they opened doors at UCLA and at Illinois and at several places, but they they sort of winked at me too and said, you haven't picked our brain and we haven't picked your brain as much as we could If you want to stay here, we probably have something we can do together. And uh, they talked me into staying at Florida. Some people said, Bob, that's going to be the worst decision you ever made. Don't get all your degrees at one place. But I loved the University of Florida. I mean, Steve Spurrier was getting the Heisman while I was there. (laughs) Playboy named it America's number one party school. There was a lot going on outside sure. the classroom, and I was having fun in the classroom. So I stayed at Florida, and it was the best decision I ever made. I wanted to stay in the state of Florida to teach, and I lucked out. I uh, uh, I found a job at the University of North Florida, a brand-new university in Jacksonville, and um, that became my first job. I was a member of their charter faculty, so we started the university together there were there were no buildings when i first joined the faculty
1: i i'm interested because you have in your in your background your varied background there is a tension that exists at the university level between research and teaching yes and in my year plus of phd work i found it to be an untenable tension yes why is that there why
0: is well there that? it's uh, it, it, there's a saying that great teachers don't do research and great researchers don't make good teachers. And I think that's junk. i I think uh, a a great prof at most universities does both well. and I think there are poor profs that do both poorly. but uh, I think uh, the great teachers, are also active in creation, whatever that means. For a music prof, that means they write music. They don't just play other people's music. For a um, an artist, they paint. For a faculty member in business or in engineering, they're active in the leading edge of whatever is going on. In my case, again, I went right out of a PhD into a university But I was a consultant immediately, and in Jacksonville, Florida, you could consult 24-7. So I was in business not every day, but every week that I was there, and I still use examples out of that. I worked at Kennedy Space Center while I was an undergraduate at Florida every summer, and I still, in my teaching, still use examples from that experience during the Apollo program. So I think good teachers— also are active in research. They may not be the the Nobel Prize winner in their research. That takes a person who is so dedicated and so focused. If you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, you see that kind of a person. And they probably wouldn't be a good teacher. Uh, but there is a role for them in research R1 universities.
1: I'm curious about your tech experience. We'll, we'll come back the Florida part in a moment but from that standpoint when you're dealing especially with technical uh and and engineering and and those types right. of field like tech is so such a leader in i could see that maybe in those cases there is more of that you know, i just want to get back into the laboratory i want to i want to do the research
0: yeah. that's really what i want did you ever run into that sure and and i think one of the things that the 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 faculty do at tech for the most part. I mean, we can find counterexamples everywhere we turn, but for the most part, the the, um, the really great prof, and engineering is the flagship at the university. Physics is a great program, too, and chemistry. They take their students, they're really bright students, they take them in the laboratory with them, so they don't just go hide in a lab somewhere. If they've got a grant from the D- Tennessee Department of Transportation, They've got students working on that grant, too, and that's when the student catches the fire. They, you know, Wallace Prescott, when he was active as a faculty member and as a, a a dean at Tech or a department chair, he designed bridges. He did a lot with bridges, and he took his students along to analyze the bridges, and they catch fire. That's what makes the civil engineer so good, is some prof showed them the application the theory they were learning. I never understood why I needed calculus. I thought, why in the world are people making me learn calculus? And then I worked at Kennedy Space Center, and I saw examples of things you see every night if you look up in the sky now. When you are docking a a, a spacecraft with the International Space Station, you bring them together together. And they're going 17,500 miles an hour, both of them. And if you bring them together just slightly wrong, they're going to collide and destroy both things. That's a calculus problem. It's orbital mechanics. It involves curvilinear surfaces, and it involves relative motion, perfect calculus. And all of a sudden, I thought, I still hate this stuff, but I understand why I might need it if I was in aerospace.
1: So you're a young professor. What was your favorite class to teach?
0: My favorite class as a young professor was still the class that I lecture in now as a guest lecturer. And it's the one I taught for from 1972 to 2012, so 40 years. Uh, not every semester, but all, every year probably in that period. It's a class called Organizational Behavior. And in the early days, it was called Human Behavior in Organizations. It's how do you lead people? How do you motivate them? How do you um, help them catch fire at what they're trying to do in the organization? So it's, it's a complex subject. There's, there's a lot of different things that you bring to it. But it's the true heart of business. Great leaders influence other people. And that's what makes the organization great is it
1: hard to keep the fire lit teaching a class that long
0: no i don't think it is at all uh the things that uh, you might teach today might be different in um content but the cons- the the framework is the same if you look at leadership uh we have such a rich environment to teach leadership right now both good and bad leadership so we can look at our evening news and see examples that you can take in the classroom, and every student will have an opinion. Now, one of the things about a prof is they have to learn pretty quick that you want to welcome opinions beyond your own, and you've got to be comfortable with those folks that are living in a bit of a different world than you live in. But I think you take real-life examples in the classroom, and there's just as many new examples today in organization behavior, as there were then, and then some of the things that you teach in that kind of a class, again they've changed in an organization structure. Look at the workplace today; you work from home instead of from the office. That's a motivation challenge for a leader. You, if you're coming to the office, you want to bring your dog, and you want to work starting at nine thirty and maybe going to three, and that that drives you crazy as an owner of a business those are motivation challenges those are organizational challenges so the the field is just as alive today as it was in 1970 when I started teaching it Dr. Bob Bell is our guest reflections
1: with Dr. Bob Bell all right
0: so when did the seed
1: get planted that I might want to do more than teach I might want to (laughs) be an administrator which is a bad word to some uh, teachers it's a bad right?
0: word it's uh teachers say you go to the the dark side <laughs> when you uh, when you join the administration and that was planted early in my career i decided it um and it was partly because i um of what i was teaching i knew i was teaching leadership and motivation and here i was right out of college 26 years old um a little job experience at Kennedy Space Center, but nothing vital, nothing where I'd been a leader. And so I went to my department chairman literally my first year, and I said, when you get a chance to put me in leadership roles, I want to do it because it's going to affect my teaching. I've got to understand this stuff better and not just teach theory. And um, uh, that man was Frank McLaughlin, one of my great mentors and he immediately hit me with those things and so that started it and um, I became a director of graduate studies pretty quickly and in that role you've got to get people in and motivate them who don't report to you they're still reporting to a department chairman you've got to convince them to teach a graduate course or to to go out on a navy base and do a do work there. So it's it's how do you motivate? How do you communicate? How do you influence? And good leadership. So I started literally 27, 28 years old trying to get that experience. And then at year four, that Frank McLaughlin came to me and said, uh, you've said you wanted to be a leader. There's a department chairman's job open at Tennessee Tech University. And you know the dean. He used to be on the faculty at, here at North Florida. Um, I'll call him if you want it. And he called, and I got the interview, and that started a career at Tennessee Tech. So very early, I realized I needed leadership experience. I needed to go to the dark side for what I was going to teach because I was going to be teaching business leaders who had that experience, and I didn't think theory could do that. Again, that's part of like going to the laboratory, going to the research. That was part of my research for becoming a leader. Outside the classroom, though,
1: from Florida to Tennessee, was that
0: an adjustment? Gloria and I both grew up in Florida. We both love Florida. We still go back. Uh, but Tennessee's our home and has been since 1976. Yes, we had no connections to Cookville, no relatives anywhere in the state of Tennessee. We were newlyweds. We met at the University of North Florida, and we just wanted to change and honestly thought we'd stay five years and then move somewhere else. And Cookville and Cookville United Methodist Church and Tennessee Tech University just sucked us in, and it's, it's never been the same since. Why did you never leave? Well, I, I had opportunities, and uh, I interviewed back at the University of North Florida and was offered a department chairman's job and uh, was offered a deanship in Florida and, and interviewed for uh, other jobs in other states. But I never found anything that was any better than what we had here. Uh, our kids loved it. Um, we loved our church, that had an anchoring effect on us that uh, is still there today. Uh, In fact, I came before you. I've been been down at church for four hours doing uh, um, some stuff on on teaching down there. But we just, we loved the social structure of Cookville. We were active in the community. Um, You know, I've been active on all the boards in town, the YMCA and the hospital. And there's always something to do here if you want to do it. And our experience in Jacksonville was equally great, but it was also a lonely crowd. You could drive 40 miles and still be in the city limits. That's true. And, you know, your friends at the university um, lived on the other side of town or maybe lived in St. Augustine. Here, you see them at Kroger's on Saturday. You see them at Lowe's. So there's just something about Cookville that has kept us here. And I don't think everyone has that same need or that same thing, but for our family, this has been the anchor point.
1: My sense is is that Tennessee Tech, for many years, has been a treasure that not many in this state knew about. Uh, Seems as though, you talk to a lot of people, that bringing the state football championships here helped in in helping parents and students discover this campus. Do you agree with the assessment, first of all, that it was a bit of a a hidden treasure?
0: I think it's always been a hidden treasure. It's um, uh, had a name identification challenge. It's it's had a lot of things. Uh, some people in the early days said, well, you know, if I don't major in engineering, then I don't have a place at Tech. Well, it's a comprehensive university. They're Uh, You know, our biggest undergraduate program for years was the College of Education. We've got a world-class history department, and you just don't expect that. You don't expect a symphony orchestra at a technological university. So it is a hidden gem. It also uh, is one where we're in the middle part of the state. The eastern state, we can go back to pre-Civil War days. The three stars are real Folks in the western end don't think about Cookville. Folks in the eastern end don't. So um, there's got to be something. And I think we thought when we brought the Blue Cross Bowl here, we thought this would help. So it was clearly a recruiting strategy for Tech, but it was a recruiting strategy for football too, too for our athletic department. And then the Chamber, which, again, George Halford and the team were just so active in bringing that group together. We've got to say Otis Phillips. Absolutely. He was the leader, and he understood all of those dynamics, from text recruiting to, to uh, the great economic effect on the community. The athletics are obvious, but when you are
1: an administrator in a state that has a brand as powerful as the University of Tennessee— Does that make it different
0: than in other places? Uh, I think the challenge is there for mid-major universities, and that's what the NCAA used to call uh, the smaller schools in Division I, and that's that's what tech is. Um, I think the challenge is there in every state. So if you go to Ohio, you better believe Ohio State University dominates the discussion up there, and not again. Just not just athletics <laughs> in every facet. Absolutely right. So at the in Florida, both Florida and Florida State uh, at the University of North Florida, y- you had that to contend with. So I think most states have that. Georgia Bulldogs dominate the the state of Georgia. So the flagship university plays that role. They are a statewide domain and. You know, uh, most of the legislators have been trained there. Uh, you just look at it; they've got a system all across the state. It is a challenge for any other university in the state to get some identity. Um, not a difficult challenge. You're not trying to become the University of Tennessee. You know, that's not even who we benchmark. So it it it's hard to um, hard to compete at some levels. You're certainly not going to make the headlines on the athletic program, but uh you can you can compete in many, many other ways because not every student wants that and not every parent wants that um s e c experience for their their child and I feel like we know
1: that even more today with today's students. there is a price to pay when you go to a twenty thousand thirty thousand population yes. university.
0: Oh, there he is. You're in a lonely crowd unless something grabs you. So whether it's, um, university of Tennessee or Tennessee tech, one of the things that I always tell parents and entering students is find an organization, find a group that you identify with. It can be the chess club or the robotics club, or it can be a music ensemble. Find something where you've got a small group that anchors you. The data is really clear. For 50 years, you'll have a better grade point average. You've got a higher probability of graduating, and you're going to be happier on that campus. Dr. Bob Bell is our guest. Dr. Bob Bell, when did the idea of becoming president happen? (laughs) I never wanted to be a president, and that's – Uh, That's um, something I've is literally true, at least figuratively true. But remember I, I said earlier, I told my department chairman early in my career, I wanted leadership experience. And so I loved those experiences. I especially loved being Dean of the business school. Lewis Johnson was still alive. One of my heroes in life and I could pick his brain, but, um, I enjoyed a ten year ride as as dean of the business school and I thought this is it. This is what I was born for. You know, this this is where I want to end my career. So Gloria and I bought land up north of Allgood and it I thought at some point I'm gonna retire from being a dean. They're gonna get tired of me at some point, and I'm gonna still teach, but I'm just gonna have my farm and do my teaching and my writing and And, um, and then this presidency thing came up and several people, when Dr. Volpe announced his retirement, um, uh, came to me and talked to me a little bit. And I went to talk to my boss, Marvin Barker, who was provost of the university. And I said, are you going to apply? And I said, because if you are, I want to nominate you or I at least want to endorse it because I think you'll you ought to be president i love you as a leader and he laughed and he said no that time passed me and i'm not going to do it but i think you should and so marv and i had an interesting thing he was my boss for 10 years and then i became his boss and we were a team for that entire period from the time he was boss till later when i became the president